and our young people, our children, may be disused this moment for Children's Church. And as they are leaving, if you would join me again in John chapter 4. John chapter 4. Picking up in our study will be verse 39, but I want to back us up just in context to verse 27, and I will read through verse 45 of John chapter 4. At this point, the disciples of the Lord came, and they were amazed that Jesus had been speaking with a woman, yet no one said, what do you seek, or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, come see a man who told me all things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. And meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, No one has brought him anything to eat, did he? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I say to you, reap for that which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all things that I have done. So when the Samaritan came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word, and they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. After the two days, he went forth from there into Galilee, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they themselves also went to the feast. Let's join together in prayer before we begin our study. Our God in heaven, we are grateful that you are a God that loves sinners. This morning we are gathered together because we are grateful for your son as well and all that he accomplished in being for us the savior of the world so we praise both you our loving father and we pray or we praise you as well for your son we praise you for the spirit who has caused new life to be in your people and father that spirit now leads and directs us as we move through the word this morning and we pray to that end that we will be under that influence, under that leading, under that management of your spirit this morning, including myself as the speaker, that together as your people, as your church this morning, we can say we have been in the presence of the Lord because we have gathered under the authority of your word and we do so with great honor and great humility and, and submission of heart as well. Everything you've written and told your people this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you can see, if you use your note sheets or the note sheets that we've stuck in the bulletin, that we're moving to our fifth, and this will be kind of our final heading under the Samaritan account. And I've kind of changed this heading a little bit. I had somewhere else that I was going to emphasize on this, but I've used the word paradox this morning for a rather obvious reason. As we look at the Samaritan's belief and then John turns almost immediately our attention to the Galileans. And we're going to look a bit at that paradox, but I think we have all kind of understood what a paradox is. Uh, as you know, I enjoy motorcycles a great deal, and I experience a paradox as I'm riding my bike. In fact, Debbie and I will be taking off with some friends on our bike next week. But as you're driving along and you pass other bikes, there's almost the symbol of, of brotherhood of motorcycles. They will wave at each other, except those who ride Harley-Davidson's. They don't wave at you. Now, on occasion, you will catch them doing it, but most all Harley-Davidson riders will not wave at me or other motorcyclists because we don't fall into the same class. 
as a Harley Davidson. Though my bike is much faster and I can maneuver through corners much better than they can, nonetheless, I'm not part of the Harley Brotherhood. There is another paradox that all of us as citizens of this land live under. And that paradox, I think you know, is that we are referred to as the United States of America. And I think most of you understand there is nothing united about our nation any longer. We are terribly divided. What we are witnessing here in the scripture before us is not that much different with the Samaritans and the Jews. And out of this difference, out of this brokenness in fellowship in humanity, there is yet another paradox that flows out of this. As the gospel is preached to one and received well, and yet the very people of Jesus Christ, his own countrymen, bristle at the idea that Jesus is Messiah, the Savior of the world, and the Son of God. So our fifth and our final part to the narrative of the Samaritan woman will be to examine not only the prosperity of the gospel in this unfriendly territory of Samaria, but the apparent indifference shown to the Lord by his own people, the Galileans. And adding to this, John writes of the reception that Jesus received from the Galileans, that it's a result of the witnessing of miracles that he had performed before these Galileans in Judea, as we're going to see in just a few moments. And this is kind of a conflicting statement about these Galileans. The way that John concludes his account of the success of the gospel in Samaria is offset by showing how Jesus received little honor from his own people, even though they witnessed these miracles. And I want you to know the Samaritans saw no miracles. That's again part of this paradox. The Galileans and the other Judeans in Jerusalem had witnessed the power of God in Jesus Christ, a power that even the Samaritans hadn't seen, and yet the Samaritans believed. As you read of the miracles performed by Jesus in the Gospels, I, I, like you, probably often find yourself saying, how cool would it have been there to be with the disciples and Jesus to actually see those things happen? It's one thing to read about them and to believe that they actually took place. But I think, oh, if I could have been there, would that have not been so much more impactful? And yet the reality I have, that I have to ask myself is, if I were there and I did see them, would I believe? Or would you believe? Would the miracles of Christ have convinced me that he is the Son of God? And I can certainly say they would have impressed me. At the end of chapter 2, we read that the Judean people saw the miracles that Christ performed on the streets of Jerusalem. And John writes of them that many believed in his name. But remember what he also said about Jesus. He did not entrust himself to those ones that believed in his name. Why? Because he knew what was in the heart of men. And though these people saw the miracles and embraced him as some amazing miracle worker, they believed in his name in a sense, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them because it was a false faith. The Samaritans looked beyond the divine knowledge that Jesus had of the woman's sins and they saw Jesus for who he is, the Savior of the world, the Messiah of God. And notice that we read in verse 41, they believed because of what? His word. It doesn't say they believed because of his miracles that they witnessed. They believed because of the word that Jesus spoke to them. Gospel truth, not his miracles. So verse 43 through verse 45 serve as something of a transition between the Samaritan ministry and the Galilean ministry that will occupy most of Jesus' ministry years. And I've included in our study, the Samaritan woman, these verses because of the paradox that it shows us of believing in Christ for who he is versus believing because of what he did. Our study begins with the finale to the gospel testimony 
preached in Samaria. And you've noticed on your notes that I've captured just a couple of quotations out of some of the verses that I want to focus in on this morning, beginning with verses 39 to 42, where it says that the Samaritans believed. We believe, they say to Jesus. At the moment that Jesus instructs his disciples to look up and see that the fields are white for the harvest, Likely at that moment, the disciples could have looked up and seen those Samaritans traveling on the road to Jacob's well. The Samaritan woman had shared her new faith in Jesus as Messiah and the Savior of the world. And you may recall from last week that Jesus had ended his conversation with the woman back in verse 26 by confessing that he indeed is the Messiah of God that the woman had been hoping for concluding that he is the I am of the Old Testament scripture. In faith, she turns back to her village to share what she had discovered of Jesus Christ, and she invites her own people, come and see for yourself. See this one who is the Messiah and the Savior of the world. And it's important that we understand once again that what John writes down is a conversation between Jesus and And the woman was not all the conversation that Jesus and the woman had. The conversation between this woman and the Samaritan village is not everything that we read here in John's gospel. He captures a few thoughts. But there is an articulation of the gospel by this woman to her own people that we're not seeing completely here. And we know this because if we jump ahead to verse 42... The people themselves, the Samaritan villagers, said, We now believe that you are indeed the Savior of the world. We've heard it from the woman. Now we're hearing it from the Savior himself. And this should tell us that the woman did not merely say, Come see a man that knows everything about me. But rather she went on to say, This is the Messiah of God. Come see for yourself. This is the Savior of the world. In other words, there was a gospel testimony given to those Samaritan villagers who came to see Jesus now as believers. There was a gospel conversation. She shared much more than we read here in John's gospel, such that we read that many of the Samaritans believed in Christ and came out to see for themselves. And when they saw Jesus there was yet another harvest by Christ. And I believe that there are some implied truths that come from the witness of this woman to their people, to her own people. I've put six of them down on your note sheet that I want to highlight this morning. And I say implied because it may not be specifically or overtly declared here in the Word, but it is clearly present. And and I know as Bible students that explicit truths are important to us, but so also are the implied truths that come from Scripture. One of the first and most obvious is that faithful gospel witnessing will point others to Christ. It will point others to Christ and not to men. The Samaritan woman point others to Christ and not to herself. And this was her witness in verse 29. Come see a man who told me all things that I have done This is not the Christ, is it? In other words, this was an invitation. Come see Jesus. He told me everything about me, and you folks already know that stuff about me. But I want you to come and see Jesus. Is this not the Christ that we've been waiting for? And I imagine that when this woman of soiled reputation came back to her village, the people saw in this woman a noticeable difference in her countenance. If you've ever conversed or gone up and met for the first time a person and you've said in your heart, I'm just almost sure that person is a believer. Why is that? It's because almost immediately you recognize a particular countenance that is consistent with true conversion. Now, we don't always know for sure. But I'm sure I'm not the only one that has said in my mind as I'm talking with this new person, this has to be a believer in Christ. It is my conviction that this woman approached her village people with that new countenance. This woman returned to her village noticeably changed. She clearly had a visible history before her community. And it wasn't a good history. 
And yet there they are listening to her. Not only a woman, but an immoral woman. A woman that was living with another man. She's already had five husbands and gone through them. And yet here they are listening to her and they believe her witness. And we observe that she's not hiding her sinful past, but is quick to point out that Jesus exposed her sin. So she's not telling these people, uh, my sin, it's a product of my community. It's a product of my upbringing. It's my parents' fault. It's society's fault. She is saying, this man told me everything about me and my sinful past. And you folks know that about me. And then she articulates, this is not the Messiah, is it? This has got to be the Savior of the world. And they confess that in verse 42. The woman told them, this indeed is the Savior of the world. And here they are listening to her, believing her. Why is that? Well, at least in part, it is because this woman now has a new countenance. She has their attention. They are listening to her. They're respecting her gospel word enough that they believe and they come to see Jesus for themselves. It is because this woman is pointing her to Christ, pointing them to Christ. She's becoming a vessel that is being used by God under the influence of God, under the, the, the manifestation of the Spirit of God who is clearly working here. And this is going to be a point we look at in just a moment as well. But I want you to turn back to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Because the Apostle Paul writes of this kind of countenance or this kind of ministry in a vessel that has now been transformed by the Spirit of God and is being used by God to lead others to faith in Christ. We have to see that this Samaritan woman is now a vessel of honor. And this is what the Apostle Paul says about vessels of honor before God. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19 to begin with. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal, the Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. Now in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware and some of honor. Some are for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel of honor, sanctified, useful to the master, and prepared for every good work. This is what the woman is doing right now. Certainly this woman did not have the opportunity to show her community that she is now a person that is abstaining from wickedness. She had a history of wickedness. She was just saved. She comes back to the community and shares her salvation, shares that gospel testimony. She has not had the opportunity to live before this community in abstaining from wickedness. But it can be said of her that she has cleansed herself from those things. And I would submit that the people saw that. There's a change in countenance. Something is different about this woman. We know her all too well. And now these people are listening to her gospel preaching, her testimony of Christ. And it says they believe. And they follow her back to see Jesus. This is an example of a missionary that is pointing somebody to Christ and not to themselves. Second, what else is implied from our text is that gospel preaching is unashamed of proclaiming Christ. It is unashamed of proclaiming Christ. This woman had to feel some sense of shame for her sins. And we've talked about the possibility before that when she came to the well in the beginning, she came at a different time of day, possibly to avoid the social contact of the other people in her community. All the women came to the well at the same time. Why is this woman coming in the middle of the day, in the heat of the day? It is possibly because she lived under the shame and the rejection of her own lifestyle. But imagine what it was like for her to have this reputation of sin, of moral conduct. People wouldn't trust her. They're not going to listen to her. They're not going to see her opinion as of any worth. And yet here we find this woman coming back boldly, inviting her village, come see the one that has to be the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And they listen, they come. 
And I believe the Holy Spirit took the fear of men away from this gal and gave to her a spirit of excitement in sharing the Savior with her people. We saw from last week how Jesus said, I find satisfaction. The nourishment of my very being and soul comes to do or comes from me doing the will of my Father and accomplishing His work. Do you think that this same excitement is in this woman? Do you think she's discovered this also is her food? To do the will of God? And share the testimony of Christ? No, most certainly. She's now found a joy and a courage to share this gospel with her own community where otherwise she would have been ashamed to speak to them, certainly about religious matters. So there is a fresh zeal, there's a fresh courage. She comes without shame to proclaim the name of Christ. Third, implied by this witness moment, is that fruitful gospel witnessing is evidence of the Spirit's work of regeneration. It is evidence of the Spirit's work of regeneration. We know that her witness has been fruitful here. The text tells us so. She shared Christ. They believed. That's a fruitful work. That's gospel testimony that is bearing fruit, and it's very evident. The woman's effective witness tells us, then, that the Holy Spirit was at work causing dead sinners to be made alive to Christ. We have already been prepared by that. By that reality, that doctrinal reality from John himself in John chapter 3. You must be born again. And therefore, when we see this woman sharing her faith with the Samaritans and they are believing, what do we automatically know about the Spirit? He's present there. He's working. And he's causing the dead spiritual ones to be made alive to Christ. They are being made born again. We do not always see the fruit of our evangelism. But when we do get to see it, like with these many Samaritans, it is clear evidence of God's power to raise spiritually dead souls up to eternal life. Consider the lowly state of this immoral woman, how God used her to bring many Samaritans to belief in Christ. And if God is willing and God is able enough to cause her to be an effective witness like this, is it not also true that he could use any one of us to do exactly the same? We have so many excuses that we offer to the Lord. And I'm going to take a little bit of a rabbit trail here. Because again, I'm trying to get us to step into this, this, the mind of this Samaritan woman to step into her role as a gospel evangelist here and to recognize that what she's doing in effectively proclaiming the gospel is under the management of the Spirit of God. She can't make anyone saved. Neither can we. But when we understand that our witness is under the work of the Holy Spirit, He will save whom He chooses. And whom He chooses, He will save. And this should remove any excuses that you and I might throw out to the Lord or other believers why we are not involved in the gospel business. Like Moses, many of us think we cannot speak. We're too shy, we're too awkward, too slow on our feet. Whatever excuse we may come up with, like Moses, we may say to the Lord, I'm just not good at speaking and therefore I don't. We lack the confidence to give an answer of the hope that lies within us. And we will fall back on the reality that I'm just a frail person. I don't have confidence in myself. That is simply a lie. The reality is we don't have confidence in the Lord. Because we can't save anybody. But if he can take this woman and use her as a gospel witness effectively, causing believers to come to faith, or to cause sinners to come to faith and become believers how is it he could not use any one of us we may argue that we lack confidence in self but it is more truthfully a lack of confidence in god he can take our feeble words he can take our awkwardness he can take our testimony stumbling over our own tongue and he can cause the dead to rise to spiritual life he has the power he has that ability 
So away with that excuse. Like Timothy, we may turn away in fear and pull back from speaking the truth. Imagine how this woman may have feared speaking up for Christ to her own people, given that reputation that she had. Such a fear is not from God, as Paul pointed out in 2 Timothy chapter 1, because even Pastor Timothy was intimidated by those who challenged his gospel preaching. Influential people. And imagine again the Samaritan woman coming back, the lowest of that culture. And even the notable people of the society, the men of that city, are stopping and listening to her. And they're believing her testimony. What is missing here? The fear of men. The fear of men. Paul reminded Timothy that the spirit of fear that he was struggling with is not from God. Because God gives to us power, love, and self-control. Timothy had forgotten this and had instead become ashamed of the testimony of Christ, Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7 and 8. We've all been accosted because of who we are, or opposed by those that either oppose us as Christians or oppose Christ that we preach. We've all been verbally attacked in some way. In truth, like the Samaritan woman, our reputation is of little importance. It only matters that we exalt Christ in our lives and in our witness. So away with the excuse that I'm afraid. Like John Mark, we may be inclined to take hold of the gospel for ourselves and then just return home to take care of self. This is what he did. This is what John Mark did on that missionary journey where he abandoned Paul and he went back to take care of his own business. The scripture does not give to us a reason why John Mark would do that. Why did he leave the missionary journey and go back? We don't know. But it's very clear that he had his own plan, whatever it was. He had his own agenda, and so he departed from the work. He abandoned the work of God for his own purpose, his own agenda, and thankfully he had a change of heart. And Paul later found him to be useful to the ministry. So away with that excuse. And I think far too many Christians fail to engage in the ministry of the gospel because they have their own lives to take care of. They own their own agenda. They're on their own purpose schedule. In addition to these kinds of excuses, we should also not pull away from serving Christ due to our own inadequacies. Consider this woman, a brand new believer. She had absolutely no religious credentials. She had no moral credentials. She had no academic credentials. After all, she was a woman in that culture. She would have had no academic education whatsoever, no credentials under her belt that she should go back and preach Christ to this community. The only thing she had was a genuine faith in Jesus as Messiah and Savior, and that was enough, wasn't it? God used that in her. So let's do away with the excuse that I'm just inadequate as a vessel. I haven't got what it takes, don't have the skills don't have the education. I don't have seminary. And literally, I don't have seminary. Faith in Christ is enough to go out and share that faith in Christ. This is what the Samaritan woman shows us. It's implied in the text. Fourth, the gospel is transformative. It's transformative. The Samaritan woman leaves her water pot behind to immediately return to her village and share the Savior with others. We don't know what became of her after this account. But the fact that God's Word describes what it looks like for a transformed believer to come under the management of the Holy Spirit, it is not hard for us to imagine that she did not simply return to her village business as usual, living in sin and living for self. Her life would have looked very different from this moment forward. Her life became gospel-filled such that she surrendered at the very moment of faith to doing the will of God and going back and sharing Christ with others. She would have continued to do so in some measure thereafter. And my hope is that this woman inspires us to find pleasure in doing God's will, accomplishing his work, and investing ourselves in the ministry of the gospel in some way. We can't all give the same amount of time. 
We can't all do the same things. We're not all gifted in the same areas. We all cannot make the same kinds of commitments. But one thing is certain, if we are truly redeemed by Christ and renewed by the Holy Spirit, we cannot go back to business as usual. In our study of John chapter 3, taking us back just a chapter, if you recall, we went back into Ezekiel. And the prophecy that Ezekiel the prophet gave to us of the coming of the Holy Spirit and what that regeneration work would look like. And remember, the prophet said God would take that heart of stone away and he would give to us a heart of flesh. Ezekiel 11 even puts, in the NIV, I think it puts it this way, the heart of flesh that is given to us is an undivided heart. It's an undivided heart. There was a dramatic transformation to the Samaritan woman who was given that kind of a fleshly heart undivided heart and by fleshly I mean fleshy in matter spiritual matter she immediately forgets her business at Jacob's well and turns to sharing the gospel of Christ life continued for her in Sychar you can imagine that she would continue to come to the well for water my guess is she likely married the man that she was living with or separated from him. She continued to take care of the needs of her household. In some regard, she continued on with life. But the evidence of a truly changed heart by the Spirit of God suggests this woman lived no longer with a divided heart, but was joined to the Lord in service to his gospel. This, again, is implied by the text. Five, the gospel breaks down barriers of separation. As we look at this gospel account, it breaks down the gospel or the barriers that separate. Before Jesus entered the Samaritan community, there existed a long-standing hostility between Jews and Samaritans. The Jewish Messiah ignores this hostility and he shares the love of God with one soul who believes and this faith spreads to others. We then read of a stirring move of fellowship between Jew and Samaritan in verse 40. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, look what they do. Stay with us. And Jesus took that invitation. It says he stayed with them two days. An unprecedented act of fellowship between Jew and Samaritan. Now we've already talked about the historical social and religious divide that existed between these two uh, so, uh, people groups, such that there was contempt and hostility between them. What John shows us in this count is how the gospel breaks down the barriers that divide where true faith occurs. And to be sure, when faith comes, it separates out the people of God from the world of unbelievers. It does do that. It separates us out as believers from those who are unbelievers, but at the same time, it brings together as one family all who are faith in Christ. And therefore, it didn't matter anymore that Jesus was a Jew and these were Samaritans. As Paul says, it doesn't matter anymore that you're male or female, slave or free. It only matters that we're one in Christ. This act of Christ sends a very clear message to the church the breaking of barriers is part of who we are. But it's important that we understand what we're saying here. Because the breaking of barriers is not simply to make us a community without biases. That's what the world today would like from the church. They would like to see a church that is a community of tolerance. In other words, don't judge my actions, don't judge how I live, don't condemn what I do or say. They want that kind of church. But that's not what we mean by breaking down barriers. What we mean in the context of the gospel is that we are now united together in Christ. And we are now followers of Christ. And when what Christ says is holy, we declare as holy. What he declares as unholy, we also declare as unholy. We are now living in the image of Christ. And we are to represent that image of Christ to the world around us. Yes, we are separated from the world. But that does not mean we are a people of tolerance. A people that have no bias. To do so would be a church that throws out dogma 
throws out doctrine, throws out the teaching of Christ. And is that not what we are seeing today in the church of Jesus Christ in this nation, such that I'm not even sure we can call it the church of Jesus Christ? At least when they throw out his word. In what must have been a quite disturbing movement by Jesus, to the disciples anyway, this group of Samaritans asked this Jewish Savior to stay with them. And Jesus agreed to it. Spent two days in this land of defilement, fellowshipping now with what we would say are Christian Samaritans, followers of Christ. And this brings me to a sixth implication. There is power in gospel truth. There is power in gospel truth. Look again at verse 41 to 42. This extends the visit produced by more believers. Many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. This one woman believes. She takes that message of faith back to her community. They listened to it, and many believed at that moment. Then the community moves out to Jacob's well to see the Savior himself, and they hear from him. Now we have the testimony of the woman, and now they hear the testimony of Jesus Christ, and guess what? It is the same, isn't it? They're hearing the same thing from Jesus that they just heard from this woman. And what became of this is that many more believed. It is showing to us that there is power in the gospel word. The word that the woman preached when it was consistent with the truth that came from Christ himself. This assures us of the power of our gospel witness when we preach the truth of Christ as found in the word of Christ. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by what? The word of Christ. Yes. So when you and I go out into the world and we preach the gospel, the true gospel, the biblical gospel, that is where the power is, isn't it? Because that's where faith comes from. And the Samaritan experience shows us that so clearly as this woman testified the truth about Christ. They come to see Christ. They hear the same thing. And they affirm to this woman, we've not only heard it from you, we've heard it from the Savior, the Messiah himself. And we believe. As we read of this Samaritan woman, it's not going to be any different than when you and I share the gospel with somebody and they go open the book of Christ, the Bible, and they find the same truth that you've just preached to them. When we preach that kind of gospel truth, there is power. Not because of our influential words or a well-crafted message, but because this is where the Spirit of God works, in the truth about Christ. And this emphasizes the importance of holding fast to the Word of our God in our gospel ministry. Far too many today hope to make converts through entertainment or trying to appeal to the appetites of the world or trying to become more like the world ourselves or even sharing a weak, watered-down gospel that we think the world will tolerate it more if I just water it down. There is no power in that. So why do we try those avenues? What is needed is the faithful proclamation of the gospel truth. Tell the world the truth about Christ. It's what they need to hear. The Samaritan account teaches us that the church has been entrusted with this gospel truth. And it teaches us, I believe, certain things about how the gospel is presented as well as how it is received. Because when you and I go out and we try to sell short the gospel, give less than the truth, all it produces are temporary Christians. In reality, those that aren't Christians at all. The faith of the Samaritans tells us that God is not beyond saving any. And you and I are testaments to this truth because the conversion of this Samaritan woman is really a picture of our salvation as well. We were outside of the Jewish community. We were the immoral Samaritan woman. 
And the gospel took hold of us. And this story should encourage our witness for Christ. If this woman can be used by God with all of her social challenges, certainly God is able to bring faith. Those whom we share with Christ, he's going to use us as well. And this brings us a little bit further into the paradox itself. With that picture of the Samaritan gospel movement, John continues on in verse 43 and verse 44 to say after two days that Jesus spent with those Samaritans, he went forth from there into Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. While John ends the account of the Lord's gospel ministry to Samaria at this point, he continues by offering a contrast by taking us to the main ministry territory of Jesus Christ. After spending just a couple of days with the Samaritans in their village and with the new believers there, Jesus moves north into the Galilean territory that will become for three years his ministry calling. And the main focus of his ministry, we need to understand, is to bring the gospel to the nation of Israel. In Matthew 15 and verse 24, Jesus himself made clear that he was sent by God the Father only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, indicating that Israel had to be his primary mission. At the same time, the gospel had the predetermined purpose of God in providing salvation to the world. He was, after all, the savior of the world, as the Samaritans confessed. And this reminds us of the promise that God made to Abraham back in Genesis 18, that through his seed, Messiah would come and all of the nations of the world would be blessed. And according to Isaiah chapter 9, as we hear almost every Christmas time, this Messiah would emerge in his gospel ministry by bringing the light of God's salvation to Galilee of the Gentiles. That's what Galilee was referred to as. Galilee of the Gentiles. Though Galilee constituted the area belonging to the northern tribes of Israel, it was heavily influenced, heavily populated with foreign cultures and foreign religions. At the time of Messiah, Galilee was under Roman domination, wasn't it? So it was under Gentile domination. The Jewish culture was strong in that region, but it was very mixed with foreign influences. And while this seems like a bit of a contradiction to the mission that God the Father gave to his son, that he was to take the gospel to the lost house of Israel, to bring the gospel to the Jew first, going to Galilee provided the perfect setting for God to fulfill his gospel purposes through the nation of Israel while opening up salvation to the Gentiles as well. John has given his reader a taste of this with the account of the Samaritan gospel crusade. The Spirit of God has led Jesus right through Samaritan territory. A gospel is preached, and people are saved. Gentiles are saved. But Jesus is intent also on fulfilling his primary purpose in bringing salvation to the Jew first and accomplishing redemption through the nation of Israel. Now, in these three verses, verse 43, 44, and 45, John gives us a challenge in understanding the Galilean ministry of Christ. As Jesus and his disciples moved north from Samaria into Galilee, he reminds us that Jesus had already declared prophetically that a prophet has no honor in his own country. And he applies that to himself. Jesus apparently is quoting a well-known proverb of the day regarding largely God's prophets and the neglect of the people to honor those messengers of God when those people are from that prophet's community. We find Jesus making the same claim in Matthew 13 and verse 57 as well as the text we heard read at the beginning of our service in Luke chapter 4. And I think Luke chapter 4 gives us a perfect example of what Christ meant in that the Galilean village of Nazareth was the hometown of Jesus, and they were prepared to throw him off a cliff and get, get him out of their way for what he claimed to be and what he claimed to come and do. John takes that same sentiment and applies it not only to Nazareth, but to all of the Galilean territory, which was considered 
the country of Jesus. He was a Galilean. And where the challenge comes in in this is that John also tells us in verse 45 that the Galileans that did not honor him received the Lord. Now this seems to contradict the lack of honor that John quotes Jesus as saying. And we're going to consider this challenge in our third and final heading this morning. But before we get to that, what this rather complex environment provides is what Jesus avoided in Judea as we see reported at the beginning of chapter 4. So back up just to the beginning of the chapter, chapter 4 of John, and look again at those first three verses. It says that when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was baptizing more disciples than John the Baptist, although Jesus didn't baptize himself, but his disciples, notice what it says in verse 3. He left. Jesus had a successful ministry in Judea. Even the disciples of John the Baptist were leaving him and coming to Jesus. He was growing in popularity. And he leaves that successful ministry. He sees that his ministry is growing. And he leaves it. Why? Because he knows that the Pharisees are observing this also. And what this tells us is that Jesus was always mindful of the hour of his ministry. That hour is a reference to the cross. He was always mindful of the timing of things. And for him to grow too rapidly in pro- uh, popularity there in Judea would have captured the Pharisees' notice that it would have escalated the timing of things too quickly before Jesus could accomplish those three years of ministry that must be accomplished, that the Father had given him to do. And bringing the light of the gospel, not only to the Jews, but introducing it to the Gentiles as well, according to Isaiah 9. I believe what this shows is that the setting in Galilee provided the necessary tension between the popularity of Christ's ministry and the presence of those religious rulers who opposed his claims and his calling. And this setting would allow for the three years of ministry that might otherwise have been rushed too quickly down in Judea. And Jesus knew this. Jesus knew that Galilee was a ministry territory where he would not be honored as the promised Messiah, the Son of God. And at the same time, There in Galilee, he would impact the culture sufficiently with the gospel seeds being planted, souls being saved, and at the appropriate time, the dishonor of his own people would see him crucified as the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. What this meant for the Galilean ministry is that though it was a place of dishonor for Jesus, there were nonetheless those who would call upon the name of the Lord by faith and be saved. Like Samaria, there would be a harvest of souls in Galilee. And this brings us to verse 45. Almost the heart of the paradox itself. So when he, Jesus, came to Galilee, this place where he did not receive the honor he deserved, the Galileans received him. You see the paradox there? Seems a bit contradictory. They did not honor him, but they received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they themselves also went to the feast. Verse 43 to 45 serve as something of a transition between the Samaritan revival and the ministry that Jesus undertakes in Galilee. And in this next section, Jesus is gonna, or John is going to focus on the healing ministry that Jesus brings to a nobleman's son. But in preparation for this Galilean ministry, the people were ready to receive him because many of those Galileans had witnessed the miracles that Jesus performed in Jerusalem at the feast. The feast referred to there is the Passover feast, a celebration where Jews from all over the region are going to come to Jerusalem. And they were there when Jesus was there. They saw the miracles and the signs that Jesus was doing. The Judeans saw it as well. The Jerusalem citizens saw it. But so did the Galileans who had come down for the feast of the Passover. Back up to chapter 2 and notice again what John writes of those people. Verse 23, John chapter 2. Now when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name. 
because they were observing his signs which he was doing. But Jesus didn't trust himself to those ones. We jump then ahead where John now connects us again with those same people that have traveled back home to Galilee and they have received him having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast. A reference to the signs and the miracles. When John writes that these Galileans received Jesus, he means a reception that was intrigued by the spectacle of Christ's signs and his miracles. It's a statement that John gives to the narrative here that shows the reader that while there was a profitable harvest of souls in Galilee over the years, many received Christ only for what they could get out of him. They came to him, were anxious to embrace him, but only for what Jesus could do for them. The honor that they should have given to him as the Son of God the true faith that should have been invested in this one who is the Savior of the world was not part of this picture. They received him for another reason. Because they had witnessed signs and miracles. The ministry climate that we see in this is that the Galilean uh, ministry of Christ would produce genuine faith in some. The seeds of the gospel will be successfully sown. It would pave the way for the church age to follow. But when Jesus prophesied of the dishonor that he receives or experiences in Galilee, it's a reference to the crowds that would flock to him for a season because of what they want from him. They accepted Jesus for what they could get out of him, but not for who he is. And when the gospel truth called men, in the end, to repent and believe, the call of the gospel to follow as a disciple soured in their enthusiasm. In all of this miracle interest, Jesus was not honored as the Son of God and the Savior of the world. And this is one reason that John gives us the contrast between the Samaritans who received Christ and the Galileans who also received Christ but were absent of honoring Him as the Savior. The Galileans had witnessed the miracles of Christ They wanted to see more of that spectacle. They would flock to him, embrace him, because either they wanted that miracle for themselves or they wanted to see the spectacle of it. They wanted to see him perform this amazing thing. The miracles that Jesus performed should have drawn sinners to him to embrace Jesus by faith and not merely to draw them to him for what the miracle offered. And by comparison, the only miracle that the Samaritans witnessed, if we can even call it a miracle, is that Jesus exposed the sins of this woman. That's all they saw. They were drawn to him, not because of the spectacle of the amazing, but because of who he is as a Savior and Messiah, a Savior they needed. They honored him for who he was. They put their faith in him for who he was. And to put this in the context of John chapter 4, They, the Samaritans, worshipped him in spirit and in truth. John offers the description of the Galileans because he walked with Jesus for three years of ministry among these Galilean people. He witnessed many who became true believers, as it appears we see in the healing of this nobleman's son in, in the next week or two. But much of what the disciples witnessed in the ministry to Galilee was the lack of honor that Jesus received, though many came to embrace Jesus as an amazing miracle worker. So many witnessed his power. They witnessed his compassion and even benefited from his divine power and compassion. They were impressed. They were amazed. But they did not honor him with saving faith. And this is really no different than what you and I see in our times. Many today appear to receive the gospel for what they can get from it. Not necessarily from a genuine faith that surrenders to the Savior's will. Many today want a religious experience. Many take hold of the idea of love or some kind of spiritual peace. Or they embrace the brotherhood of man in the name of Jesus. Many come for a season. They enjoy the fellowship of the Christian church. They enjoy the community of belonging to something that looks so good and sounds so good. It's a warm, safe place, at least for a time. But there's cost involved. There's cost involved in being a discipler or a follower of Jesus. And so many just simply do not remain. Look with me at Matthew chapter 10 as we bring this to a close this morning. Because it is true that Jesus said, I came 
to bring a sword and not peace. In Matthew chapter 10 and verse 34, we read these alarming words. Jesus said, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. He who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has been found, he who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. There's a cost involved in following Christ. And many who join the movement, so to speak, the Christian movement for what they can get out of it, they're impressed by Jesus. They're impressed by certain things of Jesus and his church. But the reality of following Christ confronts the false notion of man's self-interest and walking by faith with Christ. It requires self-denial, taking up a cross of sacrifice, of suffering. Those friendly to the Christian religion will often become indifferent to the ways of God or they become hostile to Christ and his church in the end. And as we move from the testimony of saving grace shown to the Samaritans by the Lord and the embrace of Christ for who he was, we're now introduced to the superficial approval given to the Lord by his own people, his own countrymen. And this reveals a paradox within the gospel ministry that continues to be evident in our present church age. As Christians, we need to know this. And maybe I'm even speaking to some this morning that are part of that superficial movement. We would want you to see Christ for who he is. To embrace Christ for the Savior and the Son of God, the Messiah, for who he is. Don't just embrace him for what you can get out of the Christian movement. Embrace Christ for who he is. And for the Samaritan woman and her, and her community, this meant understanding I need a Savior. And Jesus is that Savior. With this gospel paradox in mind, I just want to offer a few considerations for us from our study this morning. And I'm going to begin, and it's on your note sheet as well, see if this comes up. All believers should see themselves as an effective witness when they are unashamed to speak truth of Christ. We don't have the power to transport a harm of sinners. We have no ability to regenerate or to transform a sinner or to raise him up from the dead spiritually. We do not have the power to transform the heart of any. But the account of the Samaritan woman shows us that where the truth of Christ is preached by us, God is able to save any. And this is what makes our gospel preaching effective. This is where the power lies. It's preaching the truth of Christ. Second, the objective in sharing the gospel must point sinners to Christ as Savior and their need of a Savior. Like the Samaritan woman, when Christ exposed her sin, it told her, I need a Savior. And then she looked at Jesus and said, He is that Savior. This is our objective as we go out into the world and share Christ. They need to see Jesus. We need to point them to Christ. And we need to show them, you need a Savior. And that's the uncomfortable part, isn't it? Because we've got to talk about sin, as Jesus did with the Samaritan woman. Third, consider, and this is more of a challenge to some here today, that may have carelessly embraced Jesus by name only. Consider whether you have embraced Christ for who he is, or have you embraced him? for what he provides, or perhaps for what his church community provides. I'm going to quote from one of the commentaries that I use. Richard Phillips, in his commentary, wrote of the Galileans that they sought to employ Jesus as a useful wonder worker. They were consumers, not worshipers. They were admirers, but not followers. This is a challenge for us this morning. Are you here today as a consumer? Or a worshiper? Are you here as an admirer of Jesus? Or a true follower of Christ? This would be the challenge that the gospel gives to us this morning. And this does not suggest that we don't love Christ 
for his saving work or that we don't appreciate what he's done for us. But it is essential that we are followers of Christ and not mere admirers of his. Many people sit in the pews of churches because of the social experience or the kind of security that it gives them that I'm identifying myself with Christianity. I'm calling myself Christian. But to be truly Christian does not simply mean you agree with the gospel. It means that you are a follower of Christ by faith. And the presentation of the Galilean people who gave no honor to Christ and yet received him should cause many churchgoers to carefully consider why they want Jesus or who he is to them. And I would leave you with that challenge this morning. Who is Christ to you? What does he mean to you? Do you admire him? Or are you actually a follower of Christ? Prepared to take up that cross of suffering and go the way of Jesus Christ. I hope and pray that's your position this morning, that you're a true follower. Let's close in prayer. Our great God in heaven, we are indebted to your spirit for moving the Apostle John to give us this rich account of the Samaritans and as well the Galileans and the gospel ministry that your son had in those communities. Thank you for being our teacher and instructor on these things things that involve evangelism and gospel preaching and the ministry of the church. I pray for us as a gospel church that we will be encouraged by these things. I pray also, Father, that your spirit might touch the heart of any this morning that have maybe just been admirers of Christ, that have used the title or the name Christian but haven't been a true follower of Christ. I pray that you would do the work in the heart that only you can do as your gospel has been preached this morning, we commit it into your hands in Christ's name. Amen.